0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. As anyone with even a glancing familiarity with what we do around here knows, Hell and High Water is a show that lives in the moment, this moment, a time in America that feels shakier, nastier, more febrile and toxic and ominous and up for grabs than it has since, well, we'll get to that presently. It is a time when things are constantly falling apart, when the center is not holding and when mere anarchy has been loosed upon the world, when it often feels in fact like the apocalypse itself is nigh. But while this is therefore a podcast that operates very much in the present tense, and with an eye always towards the future, that does not mean we don't care about the past. We do. As some long-dead Spanish gas bag named Santayana once put it, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And given some of this country's epic fuck-ups in just the past few decades, Repeating the mistakes of the past is something we should all be doing our best to avoid, if for no other reason than that we are already pretty goddamn busy inventing whole new ways of fucking up. Now, the reason I mention all of this is because, on this week's episode of the podcast, we are turning away from the present and directing our attention very directly to the past, stepping back into the fraught annals of American political history to examine the moment that is the most recent precedent for what is happening today in the Things Fall Apart, Center Cannot Hold, Mere Anarchy Loosed Upon Us All department. And that time would be the late 1960s and early 1970s, when a fellow named Richard Milhouse Nixon occupied the White House and was attempting to bring an end to one of the genuinely epic foreign policy fuck ups of our time, an all time, really, Vietnam. And it's that very topic, and in particular, how Nixon's handling of Vietnam led, in a way, to an even more cataclysmic fuck up, Watergate. That is the subject of a brilliant new podcast series hosted, written, and co-produced by our guest today, a dear friend of mine making his second appearance on Hell in High Water, the Kurt Anderson.
1: After four years of Donald Trump and spending a year investigating Richard Nixon, I realized that a rotten apple devolved into a
0: very rotten orange. Kurt Anderson is a frightfully smart, intimidatingly multi-talented, maddeningly productive journalist, novelist, and screenwriter, a former magazine editor, digital media entrepreneur, and public radio host, and not incidentally, just an incredibly good dude. As creator and host of the late lamented Studio 360, he won a Peabody Award. As the co-founder with Graydon Carter of Spy Magazine, he built one of the seminal era-defining cultural products of the 1980s, one that changed magazines and the tone and outlook of a generation of writers and editors. On top of three much-lauded novels, last summer he published his third nonfiction tome, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History, an account of how the right, in the course of the last 40 years or so, basically engineered a hostile takeover of America's economy, financial system, and politics. The book became a New York Times bestseller. Kurt has also been a collaborator on a number of comedic ventures with Alec Baldwin, lampooning Donald Trump, and that partnership could be the subject of an entire podcast by itself, Kurt's latest project is the aforementioned podcast series, Nixon at War, funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, distributed by PRX, and available wherever you get your podcasts. The series is seven episodes long. The first dropped back in June. The last drops this coming Monday, July 26th. And I promise you that by the time you finish listening to this podcast, you will find yourself manically fingering your phone to download Nixon at War. What makes it so good? Well, first, as everyone who's at all interested in politics or history knows, Nixon is endlessly fascinating. One of the most complex, textured, horrifyingly dark and twisted, genuinely Shakespearean characters ever to sit in the Oval Office. Second, Kurt is en fuego in this podcast series. His storytelling, analysis, humor, all in high gear. And third, even if you think you know a lot about Nixon and or this period in history, and I do, you will be stunned by how much you learn and how much material you hear that you have never heard before. In particular, a smorgasbord of archival audio, much of it pulled from Nixon's infamous White House taping system of Nixon and Haldeman and Henry Kissinger and J. Edgar Hoover and Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson, that will have your jaw dropping so hard and so often and so far to the floor, you should probably attach a chin guard before you start listening to the series. I mean, the things you will hear these people saying Oi fucking they! Kurt and I talked about all of this on the podcast today and more from the astonishing revelation that Nixon, in fact, colluded with a foreign government to help him win by the narrowest of margins in 1968, to Kurt's own experiences at the time as a kid growing up in Omaha, Nebraska. Imagine that. Uh, Amid the upheaval of that tumultuous era, the earnest eighth grader in 1968 with a Nixon's The One poster on his bedroom wall transformed into a pot smoking Abby Hoffman fan, impudently sporting a McGovern button, on a visit to the White House four years later, the very week of the Watergate break-in. Most fascinatingly, though, and certainly to me, and I hope to you, uh, Kurt and I go deep on the off-sided, but usually superficial comparisons between Nixon and one Donald J. Trump. We lay out the ways, large and small, subtle and profound, in which Trump truly is Nixon's political inheritor and spiritual successor, and how the ugly divisive, democracy-threatening moment we are enduring today isn't merely similar to Nixon's era but is the direct outgrowth and result of Nixon's era, the rotten harvest of the poison seeds that Millhouse planted. When it's over, as I said earlier, you will want nothing more than to listen to Nixon at war, and if you're anything like me, you'll be reaffirmed in your view that the Republican Party's lurch towards authoritarianism and paranoia and criminality under Donald Trump is no aberration. It has been heading our way for a long time. It's been heading our way since Nixon. And what that means is that what lies ahead is even more hell and high water.
2: Hello, Mr. President. How are you? Well, I'm just fine to have had any sleep, but you well, know how that, I- that is. I sure do. And i give you my congratulations and my sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, i tell you, isn't that the truth? I want to try to play this thing as uh, much uh, in the national interest as is humanly possible and as fair as possible. I believe that your conduct has been uh, uh, very responsible. We are both supposed to be great political animals, but we both want to do what's best for our country. And I think it's awfully important dealing with these commies for the next four months for us to be uh, completely informed with the same facts, and then we
0: can whatever our judgment dictates. Good deal. So that is Lyndon Baines Johnson, president of the United States at the time, summer of 1968, and he's talking uh, on the phone to one Richard Nixon, about to be the Republican nominee uh, for president, and they're having this phone call. Uh, I believe it's happening right around the time of the Republican convention. Kurt Anderson, our guest today uh, here, the host, the writer, the co-producer, and the presiding genius of an amazing new podcast series. That's been playing out all the summer since June, all the way until now, uh, about to come to an end. The last episode drops this Monday, July 26th. Uh, The series is called Nixon at War. Kurt, also a second time guest on Hell and High Water. We haven't had many of those. Um, Kurt, it is good to see you, my friend. How are you doing? I'm not bad, and it's a complete pleasure to be back here by myself. Yes, without Lawrence. He's always kind of held you back professionally, I, I know. Uh, so you must be finally to be free to be out of outside his shadow. First of all, congratulations on the series. It's it's stunningly good. And I, I, I can't commend it more to people, even in this age where we are replete with podcasts, some of them extremely good and some of them, you know, mediocre and some not so great. This one, uh, seven episodes, and we'll talk more about them in a little more detail. But it's really fantastic. Thank you. you know, whether you're a giant history buff or not, But it takes you into what might seem to be people who consider themselves familiar with the 60s and familiar with Nixon, uh, familiar territory, and then takes you in a bunch of places that are unfamiliar. That audio we just played is one of many examples of fantastic archival audio throughout the entire thing. So, again, hats off. And I guess that's a good place to start, which is like, what? Why? Why? what for like what was the animating impulse to do this and uh what drew you into it and what were you in the end trying to achieve once you had your arms around the material
1: well it was the idea of and my partners on this steve atlas who had made two previous podcast series about lyndon johnson lbj's war and and then great society using this as you say fantastic archival tape to explore that he came to me at an opportune moment when I just finished writing and was preparing to have published my last book, Evil Geniuses. So I had sort of time and uh, said, I want you to write and host this, uh, which he hadn't done before, really. And, and I said, let me think about it. And then I, I had thought about Richard Nixon. I'd lived through Richard Nixon, right? I was, a, I was a kid. I was a teenager during the Nixon presidency. And I had written a novel that was half set, in the late 60s and early 70s and was significantly about the anti-war movement. So I thought about it, but I hadn't ever gone deep in a historical research kind of way. I thought, that sounds interesting. And then when I started listening to the tapes, I just uh, I just ran right down that rabbit hole because they're amazing. And so many of them, we haven't heard. I mean, we think, oh, Nixon tapes. Yeah, we, we know that. We don't know that. We know the headlines. We know a few bits and pieces. Right. And so I thought also that... Telling this relatively focused story about Nixon, and specifically about Nixon in Vietnam, using, built from these archival tapes, could tell this story in a new way. And, you know, I think it does. Because you can read all you want, but actually, A, hear, having it crafted as a narrative year to year with ins and outs in this kind of noir story way, yeah, and hearing them, hearing Nixon lying to Johnson and hearing Kissinger flattering Nixon and just being in the room where it happens, as they say, gives a whole sense of the history that I'd never had before. And what began as kind of, oh, this is an interesting gig. I just became obsessed and thought, wow, I, we are doing something new. And I realized the other day, actually, and I haven't said this before, but until podcasting, there was no way to do a five or six hour history like this using this original audio. I mean the archival audio obviously existed. Yeah. But you know, you're gonna have ten seconds of it on a on a radio show yeah. or something. So it is this new medium of which you're the new master <laughs> allows us to do things like this. So that's how I got there. And then I real I, I had all kinds of realizations I was doing it. A big one being that, you know, we all think of the popular imagination, Watergate Nixon. That's it. That's where he went bad and the last two years were when he went bad well i hadn't fully realized before and, and this is one of the themes of the show is that his paranoia and insecurity and just craziness and hatred of the press and all the rest were triggered, were put over, put him over the rails out of Vietnam, out of right. the Pentagon Papers, out of the protests, out of all that, right. which led then a year later to Watergate. So it's not these two things of which Vietnam is somehow secondary.
0: It's the same thing. I totally agree with you about the podcast medium being perfect for this. I think, you know, people have obviously incorporated the tapes into different places as they become available. And you've seen some people on cable television do devote, um, Half an hour, or twenty minutes, or you know, whatever, to exploring some of the the highlights, but not doing what you guys have done here, which is to weave that, to build a narrative around it. And truthfully, there's so many hours of tape, and it's it's so much of it is fantastic that you can imagine a lot of narratives coming out of this over time. And and I think the main thing that the one of the things that's so true about it is like I kind of think about one day about what historians, about what people forget historians about what people will, what you would make of Donald Trump if you could only read him on paper. You know, without the voice, without the the all of the things about Trump that are Trump, without his physical presence and his voice and his demeanor and all that, the abject insanity of the guy just will not come through. He will seem like kind of an incoherent idiot on paper, but neither the depth of his insanity nor the power that he has over people, uh, over tens of millions of Americans, none of that would be clear without the ability to see him and hear him. And, and Nixon, of course, obviously there's newsreel footage, but this is the real Nixon, right? The Nixon on the tapes gives you a sense of like why some people beyond his actions looked at him as such a fascinating, but dark and anti-Semitic and scheming and paranoid and all of those qualities that make him Shakespearean really only show up on the tapes. Nixon's public persona was mostly not those things and his private persona was what he really was and it was the core of his undoing and you can only really get it through the tapes in some ways. No, that's entirely true. And of course, as people have said, and it's true, hearing these tapes and this
1: kind of really deep words and all exposure of who he was, who Henry Kissinger was, who some of these other people were, Right. we're not gonna have that, presumably for, you know, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump Subsequent people who stopped taping themselves (laughs) as as much as Nixon did. And the thing I didn't really realize about Nixon, which is so fantastically, ironically wonderful, is that he started taping himself obsessively because he was suspicious of and didn't trust Henry Kissinger and others to tell the truth to his history, right? right? He wanted it down for history to show that he was the good guy and it wasn't Kissinger, which is... Fantastic. Of course,
0: it's his narcissism that leads to his, another thing that leads to his undoing. We're all, in, all of us, Kurt, we're all sowing the seeds of our own undoing every day.
1: <laughs> and, then, yeah, and here we are taping ourselves. Yeah, what are we yes, doing? Yes, as we
0: do it. So, as you pointed out, right, that one of the core thematic things is that Watergate and Vietnam are not separate stories. And it's beyond the fact that they are held together by the person of Nixon. But as you said a second ago, first of all, the Pentagon Papers is the thing that triggers Nixon's paranoia, and it triggers it in a very specific way. He starts focusing on one particular set of files that he's worried will also get leaked. The Pentagon Papers got leaked. Somebody else is going to leak this other thing. Where are these files that have to do with the halting of the bombing discussions in 1968 and that's his obsession where are they got to get them maybe within the Brookings Institute and in fact you have and I'm not going to play this sound but you have this sound from one of the tapes in which he is telling Haldeman you got to blow up the safe at the Brookings Institute you got to break into the Brookings Institute which one of the historians on your podcast says is the only time Nixon's captured on tape actually ordering a criminal act and certainly, you, know, you never hear him talk about Watergate on the tapes directly in that way, like ordering Watergate, right? But this is the moment when you hear him actually say, go and go. He actually refers to it as like, the, in the, he uses the word thievery to describe what he's ordering his people to do. And Haldeman kind of walks out going, what to make of this? I guess we made of it. He wants us to go break into the Brookings Institution.
1: I didn't know about all right. this. I mean, historians have. I, I didn't really know that this was, as you say, historian Ken Hughes, who is the great expert of the Nixon tapes, said, like, no, this is it. This is when he says, go commit a burglary for our political purposes. Again, you can't make it up. The first time he said that, that tape you speak of where he said, you know, blow the safe, break in, I want it done. It was exactly to the day, one year before the Watergate break-in. And in fact, I don't want to give it away, but exactly what happened with that proposed heist. But It was where he got the taste for it. And it was again, that that was four days after the publication of the Pentagon paper. So it's very clear that that is what, oh, my God, they're going to get me. And and I didn't know about this secret file with which he was obsessed, which really existed and exists. Yes. Full of uh, probably certainly improperly and maybe illegally gathered information about how he was fiddling with our foreign policy when he was a candidate for president in 1968. So he really thought, oh my God, they've got me, they're gonna get me, the liberals are gonna get me, they have this, they, they put out the Pentagon Papers, now they're gonna get me, and, and the rest is history.
0: Right, and it does. It takes us straight into the, the animating action here, right? So we played the, the audio at the top, right, which is Johnson calling Nixon to basically say, hey, we all want peace in Vietnam, I want to be open with you about what's going on. Everyone can operate on the same set of facts. We should all be on the same team here because we should all want to stop this war and bring about a peace with honor, as Nixon would call it. And of course, Nixon's like, well, absolutely. You know, we can all have our different opinions about what to do, says Johnson. But, you know, we we should. I'm going to be I'm going to trust you in some way. And they, I love that tape because it, there's LBJ doing his thing of like, people say that we're both kind of like badass politicians, Dick, you know, you uh, and they've known each other for a long time. And so they're kind of both in some self-flattery there. But that begins then a process in the fall of 1968, whereby in public, there is a lot of discussion about whether the bombing in in Vietnam will be halted. There are peace talks going on in Paris at the time. What's Johnson going to do? Humphrey is dealing with his own politics in the Democratic Party, being pulled by the left and the anti-war movement in one direction, which is taking him further to the left than he really wants to be. Johnson doesn't know whether to trust Humphrey. In some respects, Johnson trusts Nixon more than he trusts Humphrey at various times. And all of this is playing out on the public stage, but everyone's seeing it very much through a glass darkly because we don't really know what's going on in the peace talks. And Nixon is seeing it through a glass darkly. He's incredibly paranoid throughout that Johnson at the end is going to pull a rabbit out of his hat and halt the war on the way to ending the war, and that that will snatch away Nixon's, uh, what he regards as a political strength, and that that will cost him an election. Again, Nixon desperate to win, having lost so narrowly, believing the election was stolen in 1960. And that is just, it sets up all of this stuff that is the key to what you are at all about here. And I want you to talk about that because it does get to, I'm teeing you up with a large question here, which is, it gets to the thing you alluded to, which is Nixon's campaign colluding with a foreign government to win an election that some people in your podcast say is the worst thing he did, worse than anything he did in his time when he was in office, worse than Watergate. Jack Farrell, his, one of his other biographers, says most aberrant thing he ever did, most abominable. And it's a—I think it is a known story. It's not something that historians have not covered. But in the popular conception, the notion that, that there was a Trump-level kind of collusion between the Nixon campaign and the foreign government that may have tipped the election, is not widely understood, so please, have the floor.
1: (laughs) Well, it's not widely understood, and it was, A, covered up by and waved away by Nixon as president, and again, it it was what he was so obsessed about, what what, what do the liberals have on me? It's in the files. And it's still waved away by the Nixon Library, the Nixonites that are still out there at the Nixon Library, saying, no, 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 this didn't happen, nothing to see here. So yes, as you say, I mean, the the basics of this story have been laid out, but they were laid out, frankly, so long after the doing of them, the crimes, this fiddling with foreign policy during a war and trying to monkey wrench, as they called it, the peace process, it like, okay, 2014, the Nixon biographer Jack Farrell says, oh, look, I found the smoking gun of Nixon saying to Haldeman, do this. (laughs) And like, yeah, okay, interesting. So it was a successful cover-up because what he did is there's this extraordinary character who deserves her own biopic and podcast and (laughs) everything named Anna Chenault, amazing person who was a, a teenage war correspondent in China, Chinese woman, girl, covering World War II, fell in love with the famous Air Force general who started the Flying Tigers who was over there, married him after the war, escaped after the communists took over. Got rich, building cargo airlines in America. He dies, and she becomes this glamorous, anti-communist, right-wing activist living at the Watergate. Uh, again, too pat for fiction.
0: Referred to as the dragon lady. I mean, a obviously wildly racist uh, term, but at the time, uh, that's and, what she was... And misogynist as well. Yeah, yes, and somewhat, <laughs> somewhat admiringly by those who used the phrase to describe her at the time. Well,
1: and there's great material on tape here of Lyndon Johnson and his great Senate confidant, Richard Russell, talking about, yeah, she's a fine looking young lady. Yeah, she's yeah. a good looking girl, which is amazing to to the sexism aspect of it. Anyway, she and Nixon make make a, essentially a partnership during 1968, as he's about to get the nomination. She introduces him to her friend, the South Vietnamese ambassador, whom Nixon had never met. And Nixon says, guy and your boss, President Chu of South Vietnam, Anna Chenault is my person to you, is my liaison to you. Right. And then when, as you say, when the, the race is getting close and Nixon feels like, oh my God, they're gonna steal it from me by, by declaring peace, how do right. I stop this? Yes. Um, <laughs> um he dispatches his his Anna Chenault to like make sure the South Vietnamese do what needs doing so as not to give Hubert Humphrey and the Democratic administration this big Political boost,
0: right? It's as if it's as if Nixon has his as appointed his own uh, representative at the peace talks, right? Even though he's not currently the president or have, has no government office at that moment, and in his her whole purpose, Anna Chenault's purpose is to undermine, what Johnson's doing. And so, as we get later in our, into October. Johnson has basically decided he's been weighing out all these, all the, the you know, what is history going to think? What's the media going to say? How am I going to be regarded? Should I do this? It would be a lot easier for me politically and for history to do this the day after the election, to declare peace, to declare a bombing halt. But he eventually gets to the point where he's like, you know what? There are people dying. I got to, you know, and obviously Vietnam weighs on Johnson. It's the reason that drove him out of the White House that he decided not to seek re-election in 68. He's like, okay, we're going to do this now. And at the moment when he's ready to do it, Word comes back that the American allies, South Vietnam, we're like, yeah, man. they start dragging their feet and they start stalling. And Johnson's like, okay, something's fucked up here, right? And I, I want to, you know, he, they, through their own mechanisms of surveillance, Johnson becomes convinced. He, get, he knows. He's like, Nixon is doing this. You know, he knows about Anishinaud. He's like, they are fucking with us. And I want to play a piece of tape here because I want to hear a little more of this archival of LBJ talking to Everett Dirksen on the phone about what's going on here in late October and what his view of it is. So let's play that audio right now then we'll talk. The about. Republican yes.
1: leader and yes.
0: Mister the Republican of Washington. Yeah, most powerful Republican in Washington at that time, Everett Turkson.
1: Here's
2: the latest information we got. The agent says that uh, she just talked to the boss and that uh, he says just hold on until after the election. uh uh-huh. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. I don't want to get in a fight with him there. I think Nixon's going to be elected. Yeah. And I think we ought to have peace. And I'm going to work with him. I've worked with you. That's but I know this that they're contacting a foreign power in the middle of a war.
0: Okay, so just pause for a second and realize how fucking amazing this is, right? The President of the United States on the phone with the most powerful elected Republican in the country saying, the nominee of your party is committing treason. And Dirksen is saying, yep, he is. He's committing treason, 100%. That is just stunning. Just a stunning thing, Kurt. And
1: we're not going to talk about today yet, but hmm, history repeats or, or rhymes or something. Yeah. But yeah, it is amazing. And again, Dirksen... As the child of Republicans, Dirksen was my Republican parents' favorite person in the world, partly because he was, for instance, part of Johnson's Passing the Civil Rights Act, Yes, passing the Voting Rights Act. Right. He was important to that back when it was the party of Lincoln. Anyway, so, no, it is amazing. And Johnson calls it treason. It may or may not have been. It's certainly colloquially it was, this candidate trying to mess up the peace process. And by the way, as we show in again and again and again, he's saying publicly and privately, no, no, I would never, ever get in the way of this. People. We all want peace. That's Nixon. Right. And so not only doing the wrong thing, but being just repeatedly, duplicitously disingenuous yes. about it is amazing. And so whether it was treason or not, it was certainly a violation of the Logan Act, which again, is a thing that gets whiffed away and mentioned occasionally in political terms. As the law professor we quote in here, having in the podcast says, This is the ultimate violation of the Logan Act that was passed at the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the United States of America, saying we cannot have private citizens doing back-channel interfering in foreign policy. So it's trotted out as, oh, this is a violation of the Logan Act, or that's a violation of the Logan Act all the time. Man, this was it. And this was was a federal crime.
0: Yes. And it's a stunning turn of events. We get to the closing days of the of the campaign right johnson eventually gives his speech right
1: yeah 5 days before the election
0: 5 days before the election And yet it's not, you know, the game changer, but Humphrey, who has been far behind in this campaign, but is closing on Nixon by the day. This is the other thing that feeds Nixon's paranoia is that Hubert Humphrey, who inherited a fractured party at 68, there's the blood in the streets in Chicago. How could the Democrat possibly win after all the legacy of Johnson and the war and everything else and Hubert and all of his weaknesses and the left hates him? How could it be? He's marching closer and closer and closer to Nixon. And at the very, very, in the very final days of the campaign, a reporter learns about what has been going on, what Nixon has been doing, this collusion story with Madame Chenault and wants to break the story, calls the White House and says, hey, I got this story. I need comment. Right. So Johnson and his people are now like, what are we going to do? It's like two days before the election at this point. Right. What are we going to do? This would be front page news all over the country would dominate absolutely everything.
1: At that point, actually, it's the day before the election. Day
0: before the election. The morning before, yeah. And both Johnson and Humphrey are confronted with this reality because Johnson lets the Humphrey people know what's happening. And in a stunning act of what I think you describe, uh, certainly as putting country before politics or country before party or country before personal ambition, both parties decide to not blow the whistle on the Nixon campaign. And, you know, you interviewed Tom Johnson, who uh, was a top Lyndon Johnson person who eventually went on to run CNN, saying that, you know, at the time he was like, wait, we got to, what the fuck are you guys talking about? We got to get this out, like on the merits, not just on the, you know, that this is important for history. We should tell the story. And that Humphrey takes a pass, just says, okay, I'm just going to like, let the dice roll. And your conclusion, while you can talk about this, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in the podcast about Given how close it was, one of the closest elections in American history, seven tenths of a percentage point on the popular vote, whether this would have swung the election, tipped it over and had Humphrey win. It's not just a staggering decision and what it reflects, but also potentially a hugely consequential one.
1: Oh, absolutely. And if I can say one reason this has been pushed aside by history is people set up the red herring of, well, no. There wouldn't have been peace in fall of 1968. Nixon didn't stop a peace treaty then. No, that's not the point. The point is he committed this crime to get elected by certainly delaying peace and promising illegally, inappropriately, immorally, treasonously that he would be the pal of the South Vietnamese if he were elected. So yes, it is amazing given the present day of the media environment, the political environment, everything else to see I mean, Lyndon Johnson was no saint. Nor was Hubert Humphrey. And nor was Hubert Humphrey. But there they were, and talking privately to each other. Johnson with his Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State saying, and he he seeming kind of open to it, like, yeah, what should we do here, boys? And they both just absolutely, you know, probably didn't know they were being taped, just privately said, Mr. President, we can't do this. We become some other kind of country if we do this. It gave me goosebumps then and now to hear it because you know, they probably could have swung the election for Hubert Humphrey, the Democrats, because, as you say, it was so close Right. that election. It wasn't called by the networks until the next day. Right. Day at noon. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it was definitely close. And certainly Tom Johnson, you know, the later CNN president and L.A. Times publisher said he has just no doubt being in the middle of that, that it would have taken enough votes away from Richard Nixon at the very least if it had been reported to win the election for Humphrey. So yeah, it was extraordinarily consequential, but as I say, because it probably wasn't that ultimately consequential per se in the when the war was gonna end, people say, "Well, this doesn't matter. Well, yes, it does matter.
0: It obviously matters. And I and I think, you know, it, it is the reality also that all of the momentum at that point was in Humphrey's direction. So it's it's one of the reasons to think that it might that it might have very well swung the outcome of such a close election in which. The-
1: Indeed. And it seems as if one of the reasons he said, no, we won't do it was he thought, like, I'm, I'm catching up. He Humphrey. Yeah. Lou Harris, the pollster, tells me I'm winning. OK, right. good. I'll win. And I won't have to go down this low road.
0: Right. I want to play just, just, I mean, we spent a lot of time. This is the first couple episodes of this seven episode series and we could do this. We could do a seven hour podcast here, yes. but I do want to play one other piece of tape just from this first couple episodes, just because it's new in your podcast, which I wouldn't normally necessarily put on, which is David Frost talking to Richard Nixon about Madame Cheneau, about this issue, not just about her and, but also about what she represents, which was this collusion that took place. The whole story we've been telling here. Frost, of course, the Frost-Nixon tapes, famous when they aired and famous when they got remade into a play and then into a movie. But this element of the tapes was something that you tell us was not something that was part of the original broadcast and has never been heard until your podcast. So I want to play it because the more people who hear it, the better. It's, uh, again, another stunning example of Richard Nixon's perfidy and uh, capacity of pathological lying. So let's hear Frost confronting Nixon with the collusion that he undertook in 68 as a candidate.
2: There have been a lot of reports that Madame Chenault was in touch with President Tu via the Vietnamese embassy, urging him to take a firm line uh, because he would get better better terms, better support from you than from a democratic president and so on. Uh, Did you ever hear about that? I would do nothing to undercut them. I did nothing to undercut them. As far as Madame Chenault or whoever may have felt, uh, if they did, uh, that uh, the talks should not go forward or that the South Vietnamese should not go along. I did not authorize them, and I had no knowledge of any contact with the South Vietnamese because I couldn't have done that in good conscience.
0: I always loved hearing Richard Nixon use the phrase good conscience. It seems like still like a phrase that should never come out of his mouth given uh, I, I'm not sure he ever had a conscience, let alone a good one.
1: No, and, and that, among other tapes, allowed me to coin and and allowed my audio partners to agree to allow me to say such tricky dickishness ah Uh, uh, (laughs) so but no no and that was 1977 right that was nine years after the event and to me it's interesting and telling for the purposes of the story we tell in this podcast that that got cut from the famous frost nixon interviews right right i mean there were 29 hours and they only broadcast seven or eight or something but no, this is too deep in the weeds. We're going to put this aside and just focus on Watergate, 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 rather than all of this stuff that really, step by step by step, led to Watergate.
0: So, you know, I will say that from this point forward, you get through these couple episodes that deal with 68 in the series in Nixon at War that Kurt Anderson has this podcast series just coming to an end. There's so much in it. From this point, we go forward into really examining Nixon, the role that Vietnam played in his presidency, not just vietnam but cambodia crucially um we can talk about that a little bit more in the second part of the podcast because it's so much at the center of the anti-war movement which people forget that so much of the stuff that we remember about the anti-war movement in the late 60s and early 70s is really about cambodia the secret bombing the secret incursion that's what leads to kent state and other things you deal with all of that and then how that then as we said before bleeds into watergate because of the pentagon papers and because it triggers nixon paranoia about the stuff in the Halting the Bombing Files, which is the collusion story of Madame Chenault. So, uh, well, let's actually just let's I want to play one piece of tape, actually, now that I think of it. One of the great figures throughout this podcast, through all of that history that I just kind of summarized in a brief uh, moment, is Henry Kissinger. And Kissinger is, a you know, a guy who's an academic. He's a Harvard academic, a pointy headed intellectual and a Jew, All things that Nixon hates, and yet he ends up becoming the dominant figure of Nixon's foreign policy, and arguably the dominant figure of his entire presidency in some ways, good and bad, frankly, including the outreach to China and all the rest. But he says to one of his colleagues that, you know, three days of the week in 68 he was for Nixon, three days for Humphrey, and the and the seventh day wasn't going to vote. You know, he assumed he was going to work in either administration. That's how apolitical or slippery Kissinger's politics were. By the end of the four years in which Secret illegal slaughter has taken place in Cambodia. Vietnam is still raging as we head into the 72 election. Kissinger, who's responsible, all the way to the level of like selecting bombing targets in Cambodia. I mean, that's how engaged the National Security Advisor was. That was Kissinger's role then before he became Secretary of State. Kissinger's at the heart of all of it and bears a lot of the moral culpability for it. And yet here he is on this piece of audio talking to Richard Nixon, as they're trying to figure out, like, when like, ending this war is within our power. When should we do it? There are thousands of Americans dying. Uh, let's figure out the timing of that. On the basis of what? Let's hear Kissinger talk to Nixon about what he's thinking about that matter on this piece of tape. The
1: only problem
2: is to prevent the collapse in 72. I'm being perfectly cynical about this, Mr. President. If we can, in October 72, go around the country saying... We ended the war and the Democrats wanted to turn it over to the communists. Then we are in great shape. If it's got to go to the communists, it'd be better to have, have it happen in the first six months of the new term than have it go on and on
0: and on. I'm being very cold blooded about it. Yes, I'd say you're being very cold blooded about it, Henry. I'd say so. Um, that's one description for it. Um, soulless like, satanic Beelzebubian would be another way of putting it. Um, Kurt, I just want you to riff on Henry Kissinger a little bit here because he's a big figure in the podcast. And again, one of these things when you talk to younger people these days, I mean, I don't mean to diss the young here, but most of them don't know anything about the secret bombing of Cambodia or the incursion into Cambodia. And certainly Kissinger is a figure, was such a gargantuan figure in American life, not just politics. So I want to just talk about the role that he plays in the podcast and in Nixon's First term and, and try to resolve this massive political and foreign policy problem that was Vietnam. I mean, one of the things about Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon,
1: in today's context of bad Republican presidencies, let's say of recent <laughs> days, yeah. is they were genuinely thoughtful, smart, clever people who did have these big ambitions to make world peace. Sure, that's just true. Yes, unlike the amoral deranged stumble bums that were in the office recently. So there is this real duality and you have to keep these two things in your mind at once that, oh yeah, brilliant guys who were, as you say, you know, satanically, ruthlessly amoral. And ultimately, as we hear in this show and in these tapes, caring only about being reelected because for them, Vietnam was just this annoyance that they inherited, and and they couldn't, for all kinds of reasons in their heads, geopolitically and being anti-communist and blah, 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 they couldn't just get rid of, even though that would be the easy way out, as Richard Nixon often said. (laughs) But a year into the first term, certainly they realized, and find Kissinger first and then Nixon, like, nah, the communists are going to (laughs) win. Our puppet government is not going to stand when we leave, and we are leaving so they became, as we heard in that tape you just played, very, very brazenly, chillingly clear that it's just about getting to November 1972. And after that, eh, whatever happens. So it is, again, using American lives and limbs and blood yep. to make sure we get reelected. And Kissinger is an amazing figure. And by the way, what the kids may not realize as well is it's still alive. Yes. Not far away from where I'm talking to you from right now mm. in Connecticut. But he too was a Shakespearean figure. I mean, yes. Iago maybe. And you hear him as, as I read Walter Isaacson's biography, I read Seymour Hersh's biography, hearing the tapes of him changes it. Doing his thing like we have in one of the episodes, as you know, him this night long sucking up to Nixon, trying to yes. keep up his spirits as they sink into darkness. About no, oh, it was a great speech, Mr. President. You are the best president. This is great. I mean, he is an extraordinary figure. And yes, they talked with the Soviet Union and the opening to China. Big achievements. Yes, but just as we have to remember that they were smart men and evil men. And they did good things. They did this really terrible, egregiously bad thing. And and not just killing many hundreds of thousands of people and triggering, for instance, in Cambodia, the killing of millions more. But in extending Vietnam and exploiting the us versus the press, us versus the hippies, us versus the protesters, us versus everybody thing as a central M.O. of the Republican Party... They did a tremendous damage that we're still living with.
0: Yes. I mean, there is a lot like, you know, blood on their hands is one of those phrases that gets tossed around too lightly, in my view. But, you know, I don't think there's very much doubt that when Henry Kissinger does finally pass, you know, if there's a pearly gates, if there's a place where he has to go to account for his sins and his virtues, that there is blood on his hands. And and what happened I mean Cambodia is, you know, the secret bombing, the direct, the free fire zones, the, you know, mostly civilians in, a, in an officially neutral country. Uh, that was not even part of the Vietnam. They made up some shit about sanctuaries that justified it, but they were neutral. They were not actually a declared enemy. They were killing mostly civilians, almost entirely civilians, tens of thousands of them. And then that ushered in, as you just said, Paul Pot uh, and one of the great mass genocides in the history of the planet. It's just, it's, I mean, it, easily one of the most reprehensible foreign policy fiascos in the history of the United States. I would say, and and one that with all where the The cost of human life, it's calculable, but in some ways incalculable because it was like decades of Cambodian life that was fucked by what Nixon and Kissinger did.
1: Indeed. And we have some, to me, chilling tape of Kissinger at the end of the episode where the Cambodian incursion and then the genocide happens. And he's just, he's out there saying, oh, yes, it's unfortunate what happened. And, you know, who knew that these crazy communists would kill everyone? But he said... The liberals, the anti-war people, bear at least as much blame as Nixon and I do. Amazing. Because they wouldn't let us defeat the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. It's extraordinary. And and speaking of blood on their hands, the moment in the whole podcast, the moment of tape that most still gives me just chills and is so monstrous, like in a comic book, but it's real, is when Nixon and Kissinger are talking about the Milly massacre. Yes, right after yes. Lieutenant William Callie had been convicted and sentenced to life in prison, which they softened and eventually let him out. There's a moment, and I, 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 you know, I don't want to spoil it, but it's just—it's astonishing. There, not just heedlessness about oh, we're going to have some collateral damage. They're kind of there's no other word for it, but monstrous glee yes. in the massacre.
0: Yes, I want to make sure we come back. I've got to take a break right now. But I do want to put a pin in the notion that I want to come back to uh, the X-Files, to the bombing, because that is where we end with episode seven. So we'll we'll come back to that at the end of the podcast, because I do want to get just down to the question of, like, there's a lot to say about that. The, the MacGuffin, right? The thing that kind of drives all this action and all this horrible shit that happened. Well, I don't want to lose track of that one thing. We'll come back to that at the end. We are with Kurt Anderson talking about his magisterial, extraordinary, delightful, entertaining, fantastic darkly comic uh a darkly comic romp through blood and guts and the horror and gore uh, and moral turpitude national disgrace there was the vietnam war under richard nixon uh so with that in mind we'll take a uh, quick break here listen to some commercials and come back for part two of hell and high water with my friend kurt anderson And we are back for part two of Hell and High Water with Kurt Anderson today, the incredible author of so many great books, the most recent Evil Geniuses. He was on this podcast earlier uh, in the year talking a little bit about that book. Um, out in paperback in weeks. Out in paperback in weeks. So do go get that. Let's go buy that motherfucker. And here's the thing. Kurt's done all these things, but not a historian by training. And yet this, this work here is a, the best kind of history that goes deep that even people who are history buffs will learn things from. And if you're not a history buff, it's just a fantastically, like I said, it's, it's weirdly, you know, say I think about Nixon, Vietnam, and Watergate, it is fantastically entertaining. But I think part of why I love this series, Kurt, is that it has a lot to do with you. And part of the reason I think you're attracted to this history is because your life intersected with it in some very particular way. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. And to kick that off, I want to go back to episode one of the podcast and hear you talking about watching television on an important night in January of 1968.
1: At the end of that month, I was 13, sitting there in the TV room as usual with my family. We watched Mr. Objective CBS Evening News anchor Walter Cronkite, freshly back from the war, deliver his special primetime report that ended with this stunning plain truth. It is increasingly clear to this reporter
2: that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend
1: democracy and
2: did the best they could. This is Walter Grand
1: guy, Good night. American public opinion started shifting against the war in Vietnam, including mine, quickly. As I finished eighth grade, I turned from this eager beaver Republican campaign volunteer with a Nixon's The One poster on my wall to a pot-smoking, anti-war Abby Hoffman fan.
0: So I feel like I know you pretty well, and the, <laughs> the whole, like, Nixon's the one poster thing somehow has escaped in our, like, 30-year friendship. I've never heard about the Nixon's the one poster, so even I learned something here by listening to uh, uh, Nixon at War. Talk about that. Talk about Omaha, Nebraska in 1968 and being Kurt Anderson and the impact of Cronkite, because again, it's one of these things, and I don't really mean to sound like as ancient as I'm sounding, because I'm not as ancient as I currently sound. But really, the world has changed so much. The notion that any broadcaster could have the kind of impact could really change public opinion on anything is absurd in these, in these, genuinely ridiculous in our moment now. And yet, back in those days of three networks and tens of millions of people all watching the same one of three network evening news broadcasts the news coming on only once a day (laughs) and everyone huddling around the watching television and Cronkite in particular, that particular broadcast was, everyone agrees, was profound and seminal. So I'd just love you to talk about what Walter Cronkite meant to you and what it was like in your home at that point and how that thing did hit you. You talk about it a little bit here. I'd love to hear more.
1: Sure. I mean, in addition to the Cronkite thing happening, which was everybody said at the moment, it's not just retroactively, whoa, this is a big deal. When you lose Cronkite, you know, you've lost Central America it happened also that within weeks of or days even of this horrible famous thing that also happened of this south vietnamese general just suddenly escorting this viet cong prisoner through the streets of saigon raising his gun and shooting him dead caught in front of journalists and that was also a a very frankly for me as a little kid more astonishing moment than hearing Walter Cronkite. I mean, yes, Walter Cronkite was as big a deal as everyone says, said then and says now. So there was both of those things. And then of course, Johnson says he's not running again a month after that. So it was an extraordinary spring, not to mention Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King in the same few months being assassinated. Now, my change of heart was not so much as a 13, going on 14 year old kid, a result of that, it was being an adolescent in 1968. Right. Right. But I was this adolescent in, as you say, in Omaha, Nebraska in 1968, the child of old fashioned which is to say not bad Republicans, you know, party of Lincoln, strong defense, free market Republicans. And because that was the household in which I grew up and, uh, you know, you want to please mom and dad, I guess, probably, I was a teenage Republican. I went to teenage Republican camp one summer, this previous summer, I guess it was probably. And, you know, we got... The national review william f buckley's magazine and i and i could parrot it i read it and you know I, I could have become you know i don't know tucker carlson if i'd kept at it i guess right and my brother my older brother was 18 at the time and so this idea of the draft and stakes and what's gonna happen i was 13 going on 14 was like we had potentially all had skin in the game right and my parents and especially my father were pro-war Pro-Vietnam War, you know, the the anti-communist, part of the anti-communist crusade, this is important to do. So we had arguments and fights and, you know, four kids around the dinner table. And I was the youngest, so all my older brothers and sisters were farther along the countercultural transformation than I was. (laughs) It was good times. It was, you know, my, my wonder years.
0: Uh, so, you know, the, another element of the another thing that pops up in the podcast that I thought just is illustrative of this time in your life and illustrative of, of of certain things that are have broader applicability is you talk about the moratorium to end the Vietnam War, which is so Nixon has won wins in 68 by Harris. We just described is now in office in 1969 now has to actually do something about fucking Vietnam. And it's like turns out it's a lot easier to talk about it on the campaign trail than it is to actually end the war, although, you know, you could still argue that any one of these guys could have just said, hey, we're done um, and. And shut it all down. Nixon is not in that vein. In fact, Nixon immediately starts contemplating nuclear scenarios rather than having said, I want peace with honor. And I, you know, was trying to engineer an October surprise to suggest that he would end the war faster than Johnson uh, or Humphrey, I should say. Uh, He now gets into office. The first thing he starts doing is nuking the North Vietnamese. So, you know, it tells you something about Nixon. But it's October of 69. We're 10 months into that first year, and the anti war movement's on the rise. And one of the signal moments for the growth and the increasing traction. You have Cronkite. And then one of the next big things ends up on the cover of Time magazine is the moratorium to end the Vietnam War. And you are in high school and you are a sophomore and you're organizing what draft uh, counseling sessions for your fellow students. And across the river from where you grew up in Omaha in Council Bluffs, Iowa, a place I've spent (laughs) more time than I care to admit, there's a guy over there whose name is Sam Brown, who's one of the national organizers, of the national moratorium. And you have him on the podcast talking about that. So again, take us back to that moment there in the deep heart of the Midwest with a guy like Sam Brown as one of the key figures in the entire anti-war movement and not like some hippy-dippy, uh, radical Berkeley, whatever. You know, he's just a, he's another, he's a kid from Council Bluffs. And his whole idea was, as he talks about in the podcast, OK, it's
1: late 69. We want to attract as many supporters of Let's Get Out of This War up to the anti-war movement. Who aren't just the bums the hippies the caricatured protesters that nixon was making so much political hay off of right. but just regular folk and moms and dads and middle-class people and i remember that very clearly and that was really you know by that time that was the first time i had i was doing anything as a i mean you know i was 15 so i was i was an adult uh as part of the anti-war movement but i very much remember meetings in church basements with Congregational Church, three blocks from my home, and meeting with people from that church, you know, and and who were, you know, earnestly, yeah, I get it, I get it now, and we do have to stop this war. So, his success and his aim was to show that this wasn't us versus them. This was a lot of us's, just to say, middle class sweater-vested dads and, and moms in dresses who were suddenly repulsed, or not suddenly, but who had become repulsed and unaccepting of this war that we were fighting. And it was really a, a, a moment of change. And I remember also thinking like, wow, this is late in the game. I should have been protesting back in 67 and 68, I thought to myself in 69. And of course, only in retrospect does one see that, no, it's not late in the game at all. the war <laughs> The war would go on for another almost six years at that point. Right. But it was definitely a shift. And and then, you know, back when Time Magazine as well as Newsweek magazine, of course, but when the news magazines were the apex of media validation. Yeah. In a way, that just doesn't exist today. Time magazine puts the moratorium protests approvingly yes. on the cover. And like, oh my God. Yes. And you can imagine, as we have them talking about in the White House, how upset and freaked out and disgusted Nixon and his people were by this approval of the anti-war movement.
0: Right. And not just, I mean, Time and Newsweek, both the apexes of establishment press, but also Time magazine with the tradition of Henry Luce and and having been, you know, a conservative, ideologically conservative from its founding up through that moment practically, and a, a magazine you would eventually work at for a brief shining moment. You know, interestingly, I, I really I noted the Sam Brown thing there that I found so striking was that he talks about how it was important to call it a moratorium instead of a strike because a strike would have suggested more kind of radical left-wing politics and moratorium had a more kind of like what the image that he was aiming for, right? Totally. And it's really
1: interesting. You know, he was a very young guy at the time, but to have such shrewd understanding of framing which we right. wasn't even a term then right i, I mean, mean frank and especially- frank,
0: Lunt, frank Luntz was barely a twinkle in his <laughs> twinkle in his father's eye at that moment no
1: exactly and and again at this new left moment when weathermen were about to be planting bombs every week yeah careful shrewd political framing messaging was not so much a thing on the left at that point point. and man he really had it and then of course as he talks about and as we have in the podcast Nixon responded to that by whipping up the us versus them, us versus the rotten protesters. Right. We, the silent majority, can't let these horrible people turn America into a humiliated giant. He then felt months after weeks after his great success that like, oh, it was all for naught.
0: Well, we will talk about more about the silent majority in the third part of the podcast, but uh, in that speech, but I, I, just to even stay on this train a little bit longer, because we just talked about Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine, another magazine central to American, uh, just how America saw itself for decades had been Life Magazine. And in, uh, around the same time, actually a couple months earlier in June of 69, Life Magazine does a cover story, which is the faces of the American dead in Vietnam, which along with Cronkite and the moratorium in 69 is one of those things. You can't overstate the impact it had on mainstream, centrist, apolitical Americans to see Life magazine making the decision, a magazine that largely was all about broadcasting what we imagine to be the most homogenous, most like up with people version of America in the 1950s. And through the middle of the 1960s, suddenly the pictures of the American war dead on the cover of Life magazine in the summer of 1969. And as an illustration of the kind of impact it has, you tell a story about how that magazine impacted your home, which I invite you to tell now because it was, I mean, you don't go into a lot of detail about it, but it seemed quite moving.
1: No, I I remember it very, very distinctly. And actually, it was... First of all, I remember, because as you describe, it was this media thing that hadn't been done. I mean, we are now used to generations of, oh, look at all the people who died in 9-11. Oh, look at all the people who died in this disaster or this pandemic or whatever. It hadn't been done. And so every young man who had been killed in Vietnam for a certain week, page after page after page, like a ghastly yearbook. It was a brilliant, tendentious presentation of the war in, as you say, this Ultimate Middle American iconic form, and we got like we were subscribers to Life magazine, and it you know it was a big oversized magazine. It was it was in every sense a kind of big deal when it arrived every week, and there was my mom. There I was in our kitchen. I can remember it very clearly that summer. School had just ended, and I was just ended my ninth grade year, about to go to high school. There's my mom leafing through the new issue of Life, and I I didn't know what it was, and she just started crying, and I didn't dare like. Well, I didn't know what it was. And I I was a jerky kid, but I was was not jerky enough to say, hey, mom, why are you crying? So I got up and walked over to her by the kitchen sink, literally the kitchen sink where she was. And I looked and saw what she was doing. And she was looking at this picture after picture of these 18-year-old boys and these 20-year-old boys. You know, here she is, the mother of a 14-year-old and a 19-year-old boy, just fucking sobbing. And you know, as I say, she was a conservative Republican. Right. In our family arguments about Vietnam, she left it to my father to have <laughs> on those accounts, really. But she was by no means any kind of anti-war person, and, and it, that was the thing that shifted her. I am convinced to this day. Actually, in the nineties, she became a Democrat. But it was remarkable, of course. And that was also the year, later in the fall, right after the moratorium protests, that Seymour Hirsch broke the scoop of the. Massacre that had happened yes, a year and a half right. earlier. So yeah, 1969. And also, of course, the first year of Richard Nixon, when we're starting to Vietnamize the
0: war, it was a big shift year. I don't know if it was a better era or worse era, but it's definitely a different era where these large establishment media institutions, when they turned against the war, they had this profound effect that it just it will never have again in our complex, variegated, atomized uh, media landscape that we now have. Yep, We don't have that anymore. If we skip forward just a little bit here, you know, the anti-war movement builds and builds. John Kerry, of course, who in 71 had such incredible effect when he did his congressional testimony. People who, you know, don't know the story. You know, John Kerry's a, a decorated Vietnam War veteran who comes back and says, um, famously says,
2: Each day to facilitate the process by which the United States washes her hands of Vietnam, someone has to give up his life so that the United States doesn't have to admit something that the entire world already knows, so that we can't say that we've made a mistake. Someone has to die so that President Nixon won't be, and these are his words, the first president to lose a war. And we are asking Americans to think about that, because how do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die, die
0: for a mistake? Um, an incredibly, you know, again, congressional testimony doesn't move much these days, but Kerry saying that and giving his medals back. Another one of many, I don't want to say turning points, but the ways in which all of the anti-war sentiment escalated and became mainstream. And again, the fact that veterans were turning against the war. It was huge. It was a huge deal and it made Nixon fucking crazy, right? Yeah. Um, it made him absolutely fucking crazy. And it's part of that time in 71 that also leads to Kent State. And I wonder, you know, of all the things that are symbolic of a lot of these things coming together, both the anti-war movement, the craziness of Nixon and the law enforcement, the way in which he started to crack heads, not that he was responsible for Kent State, but that the anti-war movement is becoming increasingly violent and Kent State kind of symbolizes that. And I wonder if you remember what your reaction was as a kid to seeing you were just, were you a freshman in college in, at that point or just a, oh, no, 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 no.
1: 1970, I was, uh, it was when Kent State was. Right. I was a sophomore in high school and it was the the protest against Vietnam and the Kent State, right around the Kent State killing. That first week in May of 1970, I went to my first big anti-war demonstration with my older brother in his rock bands Hearse uh in, in Lincoln, Nebraska and it was you know, that was an extraordinary thing. And in Lincoln at the University of Nebraska, they you know took over the ROTC building as they had done in dozens and scores of campuses around the country. Right. I mean, having been, you know, that fall involved in the moratorium in this little, hey, here's how you escape the draft way. Right. This was like, whoa. This was really, really angry, appalled thousands of young
0: Nebraskans protesting the war and taking over ROTC buildings and so forth. Uh, the, the other biographical thing that I wanted to dive because it's super compelling and it's a story I actually had heard from you prior to listening to it on the podcast uh, is the story of your meeting with Richard Nixon, your your trip to the White House in 1972. And uh, it actually exemplifies the spirit in a way of what you just described, what you were like and what your attitude towards all of this was. So I'm just going to like just tell the story of uh, why Kurt Anderson ends up at the White House in 1972 as it happens basically the same day, same week that the Watergate break-in took place.
1: Same right. week, couple, a yeah. couple of days before the Watergate break-in. To bookend that, a thing I cut out of the podcast, but is true, that in the in early 1968, when I was still a teenage Republican with a Nixon poster on my wall, I went to a Nixon rally, and this was before presidential candidates were being assassinated and shot at all the time, so he had no Secret Service protection. I was there What? A foot and a half from him with my Super 8 camera taking a film, which I still have somewhere, of Richard Nixon walking around. Uh, Fucking Zap Ruder is what you are. Yeah. Well, and I remember thinking, like, wow, I'm so close to him. Nobody's stopping me from this. Anyway, fast forward four years later, I'm uh, 17, going on 18, just graduated high school, just about to go to college. I was one of 120 presidential scholars, two high school seniors from each state, and then. Some other kids, I don't know how they made it to 120, but anyway, a boy and a girl from each state. Uh,
0: there were sort of donors, children.
1: <laughs> um, I don't know, no, it was legit. It was oh, legit, John, you know, however John. it was chosen. And there weren't very many people in Nebraska, so it was obviously a lot easier to be one from there. And it was weird, it was trippy, because by that point I was tripping, uh, I mean, I was taking LSD by that time in my life, not while I was at the White House. Oh,
0: God, man, if you were going to tell me that you were actually on LSD in the, in the no, Rose Garden, no, that no. was going to make this story a lot no. better, dude. No, not until I, my
1: first visit to Disneyland later that summer was okay. I tripping at a, a special American place. Literally. But, but getting this letter, this robo-signed letter from Richard Nixon in the, in the spring of 1972 saying, Mr. Anderson, I'm naming you one of my presidential scholars. Given that at that point I was an active volunteer the Nebraska high school coordinator for the George McGovern campaign, it was bizarre. It was crazy. It was trippy. And so then, yeah, sure, going to Washington, I'll, I'll wear my McGovern button on my suit jacket lapel and go to the White House. And there I was. And in retrospect, I mean, not immediately in retrospect, but certainly pretty soon as I began looking at my youth as a story that had happened, the fact that, yeah, that was, I think, June 15th, 14th, maybe, we were... In the rose garden, getting our medals, having Spiro Agnew talk to us, and literally the plumbers, the Liddy and Hunt, and the rest
0: of them were at that moment gathering their tools to, to break into the Watergate. I mean, did you like in Clintonian fashion? Did you actually shake Nixon's hand? I didn't. You did not. And
1: it was a disappointment. He didn't show up. He stayed inside. Okay. We only got Agnew.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So yes, I touched Spiro Agnew.
0: That's actually some ways better. Uh, you know. Another disgraced figure who could, we could talk for an hour about. Were there other kids wearing McGovern buttons? Yeah, there were others. I wasn't the only one. Okay, good. And, good.
1: and I worried a little bit like, well, is this, are they going to kick us out? Are they going to make us take them off? What are they? And they, they were fine. They let us do that.
0: Kurt Anderson in 1972. Hashtag resist. <laughs> uh, so I think this is actually a pretty good spot for us to take a break. I want to come back for the last section. Uh, of our conversation today, and and I want to dive into uh, the question of the silent majority and the connections between Nixon and Donald Trump, uh, and at least briefly go back and pick up a couple of those sticks that we left behind in the path uh, to get here. Uh, there's a few things back there. I was like, we got to come back to this. We got to come back to that. So we're going to go back to those things and button them up. Uh, so we'll be back soon to do all of that with Helen Highwater, with Kurt Anderson, creator of the incredible podcast Nixon at War, coming to an end this coming Monday. But you definitely want to go back and uh, wherever you happen to listen to your podcast, download them all. There's six currently out, as I said, the seventh coming on Monday. You know, go back, start at the beginning. <laughs> Don't start midway through. You'll lose the thread. Uh, and if you haven't already been listening, you're going to want to. Uh, so during this commercial break, actually, you, should, you, should, you can listen to the commercial and also look up Nixon at War on your phone and download it. Download them all. And by the time we finish the third part of our podcast, it'll all be downloaded and you can start listening to at War. So we'll see you on the other side of the commercials uh, in just a couple of seconds. We'll finish up with Kurt Anderson. And we are back. For the third act of our three-act play today here with Kurt Anderson, host of Nixon at War and author of Evil Geniuses and about 37 other... Amazing book, some fiction, some nonfiction, former founder and editor of Spy Magazine, who was the editor of New York magazine. It's written for every major magazine in the country. It's just like if you actually do all of Kurt's credentials, the really the stuff that's really impressive, you could spend the whole fucking podcast on it. So I just I'm gonna resist that too. So hashtag resistance. It's a perquisite of elderliness. Yes. Yes, it's just a ball about duration. I've now teased this a couple times. It is, I think, the core of, if you think about what in domestic politics, what's been most enduring, in my view, about Richard Nixon is what we're about to listen to, then the legacy of this one speech that Nixon gave. We were just talking about 1969. At the end of 1969, Nixon gives an important speech as he's grappling with all these forces around Vietnam. He gives an important speech that is really is not about foreign policy. It really ends up being much more about not even domestic policy, but about an attitude and an orientation that he was now adopting towards his domestic political situation. And again, as I say, I has reverberations that go right up to this day and in very much so in the, in the era of Trumpism and, and, and the Trumpist Republican Party. So let's play a little bit of the silent majority speech, Richard Nixon, 1969.
2: A few weeks ago, I saw demonstrators carrying signs reading, lose in Vietnam, bring the boys home. Any American has a right to advocate that point of view. But as president of the United States, I would be untrue to my oath of office if I allowed the policy of this nation to be dictated by the minority who hold that point of view and who try to impose it on the nation by mounting demonstrations in the street. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans,
0: I ask for your support. So there it is. A new term of art dropped into the American political vernacular by Richard Nixon, the first invocation of the phrase silent majority. Kurt, you talk in the podcast with Ray Price, Nixon's speechwriter, about the fact that in drafts of the speech, he referred to the silent center, not the silent majority. And Price says he doesn't know how that happened. He didn't have anything to do with it. But it doesn't surprise him because that was the way Nixon thought about things. Talk about it and why, A, it was incredibly politically successful for him. That speech was a masterstroke in some ways in terms of his popularity. Uh, and as I said, it had a lot of reverberations going forward. So, like, let's talk about the the silent majority and its legacy in American politics.
1: Well, he had run partly on that, shall we call it a plank? It's not a plank. It's this concentrated sense of resentment of the elites, the kids, the hippies, the black people, the uppity, unwashed. So that had been part of his 1968 campaign and, you know, his kind of American carnage-like nomination acceptance speech. And then this is only a little over a year later. And as we've said, as you've said, the anti-war movement has amped up and ramped up. And he decides to, as president, which is very different than being a candidate running against the other, these people who don't like you, these kids and people in the cities, to do that as president. With your ostensible point being about foreign policy and this war, this terrible war that everybody wants to end, that was crossing a real line. And Vietnam aside and foreign policy, as you say, aside, because it was in its enduring power and the wound that it helped gash open and, and make unclosable in America, was this us versus them educated versus not, working class versus professional class, you know, incidentally, white versus black as well, but in this case, more of the former things. And it, as you say, in, in a short-term way, it kind of stopped the anti-war movement in its tracks a bit and made him popular again and made his approval of how he was handling the war in Southeast Asia go up. And so it worked in this short-term way, but it really, because it was so successful, it really convinced him and the right in this country that, oh, this is the way we do it now. You know, because Barry Goldwater had, in 1964, a far more hard right ideological conservative than Richard Nixon ever was, tried that and it didn't work because there were no hippies. The, the, there hadn't been riots in inner cities. America hadn't gone crazy in the late 60s, so it didn't work. Then in 68, and then especially with the silent majority of speech in 69, we normal Americans, we real Americans, you know, all these terms that are still being used by the Republican Party today were thrown in and thereby at that moment became a central feature of our political culture.
0: Right. You know, Jack Farrell, old friend of mine and one of the Nixon biographers, someone who, as you said, found the smoking gun on the collusion Chenault uh, story, says in the podcast, he says, you know, that Nixon has decided to to stick it out in Vietnam. He's not going to get out. And the way he's going to carry the argument back home is to divide Americans. He says he would purposely create exacerbate the division in American society over the war and capitalize on it. And so he makes this speech fully realizing, fully cognizant that from his point of view, it's going to be us versus them. Us versus them, as you just said, you know, is obviously a, a, now a constant refrain in Republican politics. Trump exemplifies it on steroids, right? He's like, in some ways, you know, I've, I've, there's a lot of ways and we can talk about some of them in which Trump and Nixon are similar kinds of characters. But this is a way in which there's kind of a very straight line, a direct line between him and Nixon, because the truth is there are lots of Republican candidates who, You know, whose attitude was much more traditional towards politics, which traditional in the sense that like they, you know, George W. Bush got elected. And people are going to hate me for saying this, but got elected in a very crazy close election in 2000. And the first thing he did was like, I got to grow my majority here. I can't govern as a minority president. I got to get my numbers up. I got to get some people who didn't vote for me to come and vote for me. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do a big bipartisan education reform bill. I'm going to sign up with Ted Kennedy and I'm going to get some get that will pass the Senate with 85 votes because I got to get my approval ratings above 47, 48%. And, and I'm a compassionate conservative. Yes. Well, and but, but this is like, I just can't govern with of the country. I can't govern that way. So I forget about ideals or or, or principles. I can't govern by dividing. I have politics has got to be about addition, not about subtraction. It's got to be about multiplication, not division. And Trump is, you know, Nixon basically was, was doing a, as Farrell says, and as you said, is like, he's very purposely saying, no, division is my strategy and not trying to bring the country together. And Trump again, takes that to profound extremes. And I wonder how many times you watch Trump over the course of the four years he was in office and sort of, especially, you know, now that he's out. And I know this work on this podcast has stretched over some time while he was in and some time while he was out. But I wonder both on this front and on others what the similarities are you see between Trump and Nixon. Obviously, there's some characterological ones that I'm sure you're going to want to riff on because they're, if not obvious, they're they're important. Let's put it that way.
1: Immediately, I think of, and as I was listening with my wife just the other day to the fifth episode where we have this long night of Kissinger flattering Nixon. And she said, it's Trump, it's Trump. I mean, in the, you know, and and so there's that. There's this this deep, insecure neediness for, right people tell me I'm great. But as you very eloquently put it, it's the moment where Trumpism, before God knows it had that name, but that form of, you know, hardcore, go-to-your-base divisiveness was started now Nixon, because he was also governed as the most liberal <laughs> domestic president between lBJ and Joe Biden. I've been saying it for years, and I remain committed to that, yeah it's true, and that was politically canny. He knew, oh, he could get you know regular folk to vote for him because oh look, you no know, EPA, oh look, arts endowment, all that stuff, civil rights, but it is like a one of those devolution charts, right I mean, so yes, there are similarities. Nixon leads to Trump in in all these ways that we've talked about and more. But one was at least trying to stop global nuclear Armageddon, you know. One was at least, you know, didn't care that much about domestic policy, so let the liberals do what they wanted, but, you know, presided over liberal solutions, progressive solutions my God, did wage and price controls for which Milton Friedman at the time accused him of being just an evil, horrible socialist sellout. Created the EPA. Created the EPA. Oh, created OSHA. I mean, you can go on and on. I mean, it's it's amazing.
0: Right. you go on forever. Yeah. yeah.
1: So here was a guy who was within the normal range of evil, evil and decency, craziness and sanity and all those things that, frankly, most presidents have some combination of all those things you know, most of this work was done on on Nixon award during 2020. Yeah. As Donald Trump was declining into new lows of insanity and ugliness. And so the way in which and whether it's oh meddling with foreign policy is, of course, and colluding with a foreign government or yes, or neediness or yeah. get those protesters shoot them if necessary. Right. Oh, I mean, it was like, wait, this phrase this line attributed to mark twain that i quote a lot and twain probably never said (laughs) which is that history doesn't repeat itself but it definitely rhymes rhymes my god donald trump is this as i say a a kind of horrible frankensteinian devolved caricature of richard nixon who by the way back then when we all hated richard nixon he seemed like a very cartoon of evil (laughs) but baby hold my beer
0: yeah (laughs) see what you get in 50 years and, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I, first of all, I want to congratulate you for uh, in, in the space of one. I mean, it's seven episodes, so I, I give you some latitude. But you do compare Nixon both to King Lear and to Lady Macbeth in the same podcast, which is kind of awesome. I mean, all very, you know, Nixon, we're going to go Shakespearean. Let's get a couple different ones in there. And
1: ungendered.
0: I, yes. But, you know, you think about, it, I mean, there's all the personally, there's the, you know, there's the anger, there's the neediness, there's the resentment against elites, except wanting to be part of the elite at the same time. You know, you hate the establishment, but you want to actually get its approval. Hating the people around you. I mean, yes. there's
1: one amazing yes. set of risks. Well, that guy, he hasn't called me to congratulate me. He has, that
0: cabin, fuck them all. I hate them all. Right. You know, I mean, you could, I mean, it's Trump. And obviously the paranoia. And I will yep. say, just as we sit here, I want to get to a specific one in a second. But as we sit here with all these new books coming out, you know, Mark Milley suddenly looks so much like Jim Schlesinger, who, you know, when the waning days of Nixon basically told the whole national security establishment, Schlesinger said, don't take any of Nixon's orders on the military front without running them through me, basically circumvented the chain of command and the constitution because he was like, Nixon's out of his fucking mind. He's drunk. He's talking to the pictures on the walls in the White House. If he launches a nuclear war right now, somebody's got to stop him and I'm going to be the guy. And Millie is sort of like the Schlesinger of our time, but essentially doing the same thing in the period between November 7th and January 20th. But here's a very specific one that I'm going to raise it only because I really want to play this tape. It's like I just that's like one of my favorite things in the whole podcast is the relationship with the press, you know fake news, enemy of the people, all that stuff that we hated Trump for or that we found appalling in Trump, correctly so. All of it has its genesis. Uh, it's, it, maybe it's not its inception, but Nixon driven mad by leakers, just like Trump, monitoring reporters, just like Trump, surveilling his own officials to see who's talking to the press, just like Trump. And here is in the, the Pentagon Papers turns into, it comes out, again, we've talked about this already, drove Nixon crazy. He's wanted to know who the leakers were. He's worried about it because of those X-Files. But he's also, as the thing evolves and there's the legal challenges are happening, uh, Nixon is trying to stop the publication of further stories about the Pentagon, Washington Post, New York Times, there are multiple legal things going on, all very important. In the middle of it all, Nixon has a conversation with J. Edgar Hoover, the uh, head of the FBI. I want to play that right now.
2: I saw her on the TV last night, Mrs. Graham. I would have thought she's about 85 years old. She's only about, I think, uh,
1: something like 57. She had just turned 54. Oh, no, I know that. And
2: I I had an idea she was a great deal older when I looked at her last night. She's aged terribly.
1: She's a
0: terrible old bag.
2: Oh, she's an old bitch in my estimation.
0: (laughs) That's right. So uh, that's that's J. Edgar Hoover had the FBI referring to Catherine Graham, sainted publisher of the Washington Post, first making fun of her age. It says she's aged terribly. And then Nixon refers to her as a terrible old bag. And Hoover says, and calls her an old bitch in my estimation. (laughs) And Nixon says, that's right. I mean, you know, that's what the kind of thing we live for in the Nixon tapes, Kurt, right there.
1: Well, thank you for appreciating that. I mean, it wasn't essential to telling the story. But my God, as soon as
0: I heard that, I said, this is a hill I'm dying on. We're obviously making light of it, and it's obviously horrible, but, like, look, it's illustrative of just, like, the J.R. Hoover was maybe the most powerful person in American life for about 30 years and abused the FBI, the awesome powers of law enforcement in America in a way, including assassinating Black Panther leaders, you know, did all kinds of crazy bad shit. But this is the kind of conversation that Hoover and, and Nixon would have. They were two peas in a pod. And this is illustrative. It gives you a sense that you can't kind of, just by doing the Wikipedia entry on Hoover, you don't get it until you hear Hoover referring to K. Graham in this way. I don't think. I think it just it gives it the visceral reality uh, totally. that you can't get on just in, in dry print. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, having the time, you know, like
1: with a good book, to explain that Nixon started his career as an anti-communist, became famous as an obscure member of the House from California by making Alger Hiss his nemesis in the late 40s and, and 1950, along with J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover, then head of the FBI already for 25 years, was his partner in crime in doing that. So to them, to, certainly to Richard Nixon, the Pentagon Papers was just, oh,
0: you know, Alger Hiss, Ray Dukes. Right. And of course, Trump is constantly looking for his own Hoover. He's looking for his own Roy Cohn. He's looking for his own. Right. You know, these are the things he's constantly expressing, like the good old days. That was the good old days when Nixon had Hoover. You know, that's like the way Trump thinks about these things and, and thinks that everybody who doesn't go as far as Hoover would go for Nixon, that they are weak in some way and they're not sufficiently loyal to him and not sufficiently willing to do what's necessary to, you know, preserve order and achieve Trumpism across the board.
1: Although Trump is so stupid and and incompetent <laughs> at, at, at being an autocrat, yes. Richard Nixon understood that, wait, J. Edgar Hoover is fucking me this way, this way. He lied to me about my plane being bugged. What? Right. And Trump wouldn't have been able to contain that. He would have immediately, he's my enemy. I'm firing J. Edgar Hoover.
0: But that actually kind of raises the question, like the ultimate question, right? You point out, you know, like we see all these things that are similar between Trump and Nixon and the oppositional politics, the division, the hatred of the press, all these character things we talked about. Brutish father, by the way. Yes. Brutish father. And you started to raise, of course, there's a difference, right? Because these are not small uh, compensating virtues. Nixon did some big, important things, left, as again, we're just talking about, left some institutional arrangements that were profoundly liberal and profoundly important in American life on both foreign policy and domestic. You know, so they're different. They're obviously different. But here's, I think, where it comes down to the existential question about the two of them. And I don't know the answer to this. I mean, Nixon obviously has autocratic tendencies, And he left office because of his abuse of power uh, and extra constitutional measures. But he did leave office, right? When the moment came, there was, you know, for all of his autocratic tendencies, which were real, he did a thing that would be unthinkable and was unthinkable when Trump was in office, which was when he was presented with the political reality by members of his own party. He eventually resigned, sat down, you know, nobody forced him out of office. He left very early in a second term, as we all know. And so I guess the existential question is... You know, for Nixon, could there ever have been a January 6th for Richard Nixon? Or was there just enough still of an institutionalist in Nixon that he would never have gone that far? That's really, to me, one of the kind of core questions. Trump was, willing, like, did this thing that is in some ways without precedent in parallel. Did Nixon have that in his heart? Do you he just not think of it? Like, how do you think about the ultimate autocratic desires, tendencies, proclivities of the two of them? How do you stack the two up against each other? Is that a connection or not? It's a connection. But
1: the A-B testing of their different approaches when the end was nigh, uh, just as you say, illustrates it. I mean, not only was he enough of an institutionalist and, okay, they got me, I'm done. But also, of course, famously, Barry Goldwater, Howard Baker, the Republican elder statesman at the time said, Mr. President, uh, this is done. You got to go. You got to resign. This is not happening. And so I think the basic line where the pale was wasn't or wasn't beyond the pale yeah. kept more or less in the same place until Donald Trump. Right. I mean, you know, yes, Republicans got crazy in all kinds of ways, starting in the I would argue the '90s, and and got bad and worse and in all kinds of ways for years, and Trump exploited that as much as caused it. But in this particular autocratic like no 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 not not moving an inch further right or an inch further crazy or an inch further fascistic going a full nine yards yeah it's it's a whole different thing that that's where it's not a difference in degree it's a different effectively in kind you know richard Nixon yes, bad guy, committed crimes, kept covering things up to to <laughs> abuse power yeah. using the i r s to try to in disgrace this. his- ap- political opponents yes 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 yes, yes. Uh, and <laughs> That is the playbook from which, you know, Trump didn't even know he was fucking playing, right? Yeah. And so before you, you said, well, maybe it's the inception of all this anti-press stuff. Definitely the inception. I mean, I don't think it ha I mean, yes, politicians have always had problems with the press, but it was never central to their... Strategy. Well, and just visceral understanding yeah. of things from, you know... Right. Sometimes listen to the whole speech when he said, you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore after he lost the governorship of California. It's incredible. Yeah. A lot, it's all... It's all there. It's not just that line. It's on and on and on. Ever since Alger Hiss, you've hated me. Um, so, yes, there are these commonalities. But it, when we we see those graphs where, where it's the hockey stick and it suddenly goes like that. Yeah, it's a graph. It's a continuum. But Trump is the place where the hockey stick just goes straight north.
0: Yes. And I think that's, uh, you know, to go back to my Millie and Schlesinger thing, right? Here's Millie and Schlesinger are both worried that in the waning days that Nixon in Schlesinger's case, and Trump in Milley's case, that they will launch a forward adventure, a war, nuclear or otherwise. And and Milley's worried about Iran. And in Schlesinger's case, he's worried about nukes with Nixon. They're both worried about that. Where they're different is that Milley's also worried about Trump trying to stay in office and have a coup and have a Reichstag moment, which is not something that Schlesinger would ever have thought about Nixon. No one thought, well, Nixon might be plotting to try to mobilize the military to allow him to stay at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue after losing an election. That would have been beyond even those people who, even I mean, maybe some liberals outside the White House, but within the government, people were like, Nixon's fucked up, but that would never crossed anybody's mind that Nixon would be no, plotting that would be plotting a, 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 a crazy Paul Krasner
1: fiction, you know, back then.
0: Yeah, so that uh, brings us back to the thing that I wanted uh, to—I wanted to button that up. Uh, And you know, uh, Nixon at War, the podcast. Again, let's just remind everybody: the finale is this Monday, the seventh episode. But you got to go out and download the whole thing and listen to it all—all seven episodes. They're brilliant, uh, as I've said now 25 times. You get to the end of Nixon at War, that episode that's dropping on Monday that the public hasn't heard, but I've been lucky enough to have heard. And you realize that when you get to the end, you're going really back to the beginning of the podcast and the beginning of the podcast series begins with the Pentagon Papers and Nixon learning. His daughter's just gotten married. The Pentagon Papers have just been have just exploded. He's freaking out. Not because there's something in the Pentagon Papers that implicate him in some way. They're all about Johnson and and Kennedy. And Kissinger's even saying to him, they're pretty good for us. They make those guys look like assholes. But Nixon's still freaking out. He's freaking out because he thinks, you know, what do they got on me? Right. If they got stuff on Johnson and Kennedy, Around Vietnam. They must have something on me. And he knows there is actually some stuff out there. That's the other thing, right? So he starts, you know, his paranoia is inflamed by the leak of the Pentagon Papers, and he starts ordering people to break into shit. It's like, go break into the Brookings Institution, where they have the the files he thinks about the bombing halt uh, controversy from '68. He says, go to the plumbers. He says, to Lydia and Hunt. He says, go break into Daniel Ellsberg's shrinks office. That's all part of the same operation that ultimately is also uh, what Watergate's part of. But it's basically Nixon triggered by the Pentagon Papers, by leaking and by the possibility of exposure. It triggers him. He freaks out. He starts telling people to break into stuff. And eventually that is the thing that takes you into Watergate. But it also ties back to the very beginning of where this all started, the stuff that Nixon did while he was still a candidate and not even president of the United States. It just ties it all up with a neat little bow. And I just find it kind of astonishing and incredibly satisfying, Kurt, the way it ties it all up just like
1: that. Well, and, and as you're saying that, I want you yet another Trumpian thing. It's like, he doesn't really care about this policy or that. It's like, what do you got on me? What do you got on me?
0: How is this going to be bad for me? So all of this is motivated, a lot of it's animated by the file. The whole thing of the bombing file, which gets, eventually gets called the X-Files, I believe, in, by them and, and in your in the podcast. By, by the Johnson administration. They, they actually, somebody wrote X-File on it. <laughs> Very nice. David Duchovny is smiling somewhere. So it turns out it's not at the Brookings Institute. It turns out it's in Texas with a guy named Walt Rostow, who was one of LBJ's- National Security Advisor, yeah. Right. And he has left it with the LBJ people, the archivists, the, you know, the library, and said, top secret, do not open for 50 years, right? So that's 2023 would be 50 years, in fact. Here's my question for you is like, what do we know that's in the file? I mean, we obviously know it relates to some of the stuff that, that is now we were talking about the Chenault stuff, but do we believe there's other stuff in there that's, that could be damaging? Like, are we really waiting on bated breath for 2023 for this to come out? What's your view on the on the file?
1: I'm certainly curious about what <laughs> is in it that hasn't been released. They have released stuff over the years. They went against the original Planned. It all has to be secret for fifty years. And let let things out here and there. I I you know I don't think it's quite empty Al Capone's vault territory where there's going to be nothing of interest. I think it'll be interesting to you and me and historians. But I wouldn't get our hopes up too high. And again, this was the pl- I mean plan. I mean uh, many things out of for all kinds of good reasons are saying oh don't open this for fifty years or whatever. Sure. But all along with this particular set of files and this story of the meddling with our foreign policy in the Vietnam peace talks in 1968, it's like, eh, just push it down the road, push it down the road, push it down the road. Eventually, people won't give a fuck. And and even
0: turns out that's right. In
1: 1977 with David Frost, he didn't give a fuck. You know, he didn't put it on his great TV show. And so just push it down like, yeah, 2023, whatever is remaining like, oh, yeah, look, he was really bad again. Reminds me of a much more lengthy version of today's accelerated version of, oh, yeah, we find out six months later that Trump wanted to have a coup. Eh. You know, I mean, yeah, just give it time and it will become less what, I guess, appalling, consequential. So it's that. And so, I. yeah, I don't I, 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 I'd love to see that there was more NSA, CIA, FBI right. information about about what Richard Nixon was doing back then. I don't know. There might be, but I wouldn't get my hopes up.
0: In some ways, the whole thing really just rather depressingly suggests that, like, you know, you think as you watch Republicans now uh, attempting to memory hole January sixth and and gaslight the whole country on it, Trump is actually going further now and trying to turn it into a glorious thing. He's got to get really going into a complete zone of dark nuttiness. But the Republicans are like, hey, let's memory hole this thing. You think there's no way they can really believe they can memory hole something like an attack on the Capitol, but. This whole story suggests that the American capacity for for having things be memory-holed is worryingly large. There's like, you know, ignore it, sweep things under the rug. You're like, that's too big to sweep under the rug. Turns out there's almost nothing too big to sweep under the rug. And that's one of the lessons, I think, in some ways of your whole story here is that, you know, memory-holing works if it's determined enough. Well, and, you
1: know, I wrote a book called Fantasyland a few years ago that was about the peculiarly American predilection for the mingling fiction and reality, and you know, turning more and more reality into fiction. Um, yeah, it is nerve wracking. And you know, can they do it forever, though? I mean, even you know, the Soviet Union, which as a method of operation, you know. Everything went down the memory hole in real time. Right, right. And eventually, even though we don't have a good regime running Russia, I mean, we all know what Stalin did now. Yes. I mean, so it doesn't last forever. I mean, taking the very long view. No, it doesn't. They, but they can't put it in the memory hole forever. But... The question is whether we'll still have a democracy by the time it comes out of the memory hole. That's really kind of the <laughs> That like, is the no joke question. Exactly right. That is, that is the no joke question. And now that we have the infrastructure, thanks to the internet and cable news, to make the alternate reality, the untrue history be beamed into people's minds every hour and every day, it's a lot more possible than it ever was before.
0: Kurt Anderson, you are a delight to talk to you. It's the funny thing about this. I get to talk to a lot of interesting people on in this podcast, but uh, one of my genuine, like, greatest pleasures about this is getting to have in this formal, structured setting basically another iteration or incarnation of kind of the running conversation that I have with certain friends of mine who I, who I always learn from and who are always like doing really fascinating projects. And I, I get to like be a barnacle who like attaches myself to the hull of the boat. You know, I'm, I'm a parasite, right? So, it's part of why I've been friends with you for so long, because you're constantly producing stuff for me to be parasitic off of. And this is a great example of that. The podcast is fantastic. Everyone should listen to it. It's 10 times better than this conversation. I thought this conversation was pretty good. I have never had a
1: better media conversation about anything I've ever done than this one we just have just <laughs> had. There may be yeah. some that are
0: equal, but never had a better one. Well, you're nice to say that. And it was it was great to see you. Hasta la vista, amigo. <laughs> All right, brother. See you later. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Kurt Anderson for being with us. If you like this episode of the podcast, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host. and the executive editor of The Recount. John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Leah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie S. Stender is our post producer, and Christian Fidel Castro, Russell, is our executive producer.